Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. The Apostle Paul says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which was following them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low, in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Would you pray together with me? Father, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may be able to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray that you would establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask that you would incline our hearts towards your testimonies and not towards dishonest gain. And Lord, we pray it in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. When I answered the phone, my wife's voice was at the other end of it, and I could tell that she had been crying, and that she was indeed crying as she was on the phone with me. This was a little bit over a week ago on Valentine's weekend, and I was on an outing with my three-year-old when Susan's call came in. And she explained to me on the phone through tears that she had just had an accident and that she had fallen down the stairs, fallen down our basement stairs. And this wasn't a slight misstep or a slide. She was carrying some seat cushions down these stairs and she'd been across these stairs, I don't know how many times, but this time was a little bit different because not only was she carrying these seat cushions, but also our little girl Emily had left Uh, actually our little girl Abby had left a little toy ball on the stairs and so when Susan's foot hit that ball she went airborne and went up in the air and hit really hard on the stairs before descending the rest of the way down so when she's on the phone with me she's in a great deal of pain and she's crying and she's not crying because of the pain She's crying because at that time she was 24 weeks pregnant with our baby boy. And she was thinking the same thing that I was thinking, is is our baby okay? So I gathered up Emily and we drove back home as quick as we could. And when I got there, Susan was still in great distress. She was laying on the couch 
And we soon got a call from our uncalled doctor who said that you, you definitely need to come in right now. So we left the girls with our family members. We got in the car and we raced down towards Baptist East as quick as we could. And if Susan wasn't distressed enough, I was distressing her even more by the way that I was driving. Traffic was was, was was bumper to bumper and I was weaving in and out of it. I was breaking every law in the book. I was going around in the oncoming traffic on Shelbyville and I was honking at people and getting angry. And um, we were going around them in the turning lanes. So finally we got there and uh, I was hoping that we would have gotten pulled over and we, we would have gotten an escort, but that didn't happen. Finally, we, we arrived at labor and delivery at Baptist East. They immediately put her into a room and they began to do tests on her. And we were there for hours as they were observing her, and we found out that Susan had actually fallen in just such a way that if you're going to have a hard fall, this is the way that you want to fall. This is the way that was the safest way to fall if you're, you're pregnant. There was no bleeding, there were no contractions, no distress on the baby's part. Susan was in a lot of pain, but, but the baby was, was not in pain. And so the doctor ordered one final test just to see if the placenta had torn and there was no internal bleeding. And it, thanks be to God, it turned out that that, that, that wasn't the case and th- that the baby was okay. Susan and the baby were, were safe. And as Susan and I were sitting there in the hospital room, uh, Susan began to reflect on, on the accident and, and what had happened. And she began to talk about and to kick herself that she had carried those cushions down the stairs. Now, you need to know something about my wife. My wife is not careless about her pregnancy. She is the most conscientious, expectant mother that I have ever known. And I'm not just saying that because this is a sermon. She really is that way. Nevertheless, as she was laying there and she was thinking about what happened, there was this renewed awareness of what's at stake every single time that she takes a step. And in particular, when she walks downstairs, every single step that she takes, our little boy's life is at stake. And she looked at me from that hospital bed and she said to me, I will never walk down those steps again without holding onto that rail and without being able to see my footing. In essence, what she said to me, I'm going to take heed lest I fall. I wonder how many of you take heed lest you fall. And I'm not talking about just literal walking. I'm talking about the daily reality of your life. How many of you are aware of what is at stake in every single decision that you make, with every step that you take in your life? As you tread the familiar paths of your everyday life, how many of you are really thinking about the fact that every step you take can either be, either be a safe one or a fatal one? Have you ever considered, for instance, that every time you get on the internet, your life is at stake? I know this is a familiar place, familiar territory, but every time you get on, it could be, a harm, it could be harmless or it could be the beginning of a marriage-wrecking, soul-destroying addiction that leads to death. Do you take heed lest you fall? How many of you surf the internet trembling that your own sin might take you further down and deeper in than you ever imagined? And that's just the internet. I mean, how many of you think the way that Jesus thought when he said in Matthew chapter 7, enter through the narrow gate? For wide is the gate 
and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Every step that you take will either be a step down the broad road to destruction, or a step down the narrow path to life. And some of you think that your footing is secure simply because you walk on familiar and safe paths. You're a seminary student, and the daily grind distracts you from daily dangers. And you're studying for ministry, serving at your church, working to support yourself and your family. And you hardly even think about the myriad ways that the devil and your own flesh conspire to destroy you. And you're not taking heed, and thus you are ripe for a fall. And that's why you need to hear what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. According to this passage, we see that Paul is teaching about food sacrificed to idols. And the issue for, of, of literal idol worship is a little difficult for us to relate to because we don't walk around Louisville and see idols temples in this corner and on that corner. But that, that wasn't the case with them. Idol worship, idols temples were a live issue in first century Corinth. And you have to remember that these Corinthians were by and large Gentile Christians who had been converted from paganism to worshiping and following Christ. And, and pagan temples to them were as familiar and, and as common as Walmart is to us. This was just a regular thing of everyday life. But according to chapter 8 and verses 9 to 10, some of the Corinthian Christians were still eating meals in these pagan temples. And what they reasoned was that it was no big deal for them to go and to eat there and to dine in an idol's temple because it was, in their mind, just like going to the civic center. This is just a place you go to meet, meet and greet. This is a place you go, you can get food. And they were standing strong in the knowledge that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. There's only one God. They don't have to worry about idols because non-existent gods are not a threat to Christians. And so they had special knowledge that made them immune from anything that might hurt them from eating in these idols' temples. But Paul tells them in chapters 8 and 9 and chapter 10 that there's actually more to it than that. In chapters 8 through 9, he tells them that your going there is actually a spiritual threat to other people. And he's saying to them in chapter 10 that they're putting their own souls at risk by going and eating in these idols' temples. And they don't even realize the great spiritual danger that they're in. And so Paul is telling them here to beware. And so the main point of this uh, passage in verses 1 to 13 is verse 12. Look at it. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands firm take heed lest he fall. And what follows in verses 1 through 13 is Paul giving a string of Old Testament examples of people who appeared to be standing firm, but who fell. And Paul's exhortation to take heed is therefore an exhortation to beware. So look at this passage and think of it in three different sections. You've got verses 1 through 5, verses 6 through 11, and verses 12 through 13. And in each section, Paul is going to give and issue a warning to beware. So look at the first section, verses 1 to 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, he, he warns them essentially to beware of your privileges. Verse 1, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Now notice that first word, for. Stop right there and look at the word, for. 
You all know from your exegesis class what this word for means. This means that the entire passage that we're about to read is ground is a ground for the verse that comes right before. And the verse that comes right before is chapter 9 and verse 27, which says this. I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. So everything that Paul is about to say in verses 1 through 13 is a ground for verse 27 of chapter 9. Paul is saying that he exercises self-control and self-discipline in his life so that he won't be disqualified. I think disqualified, it's not actually my favorite translation here because um, some people read this to mean that he is being disqualified from the rewards that save people once they go the safe people receive once they go to heaven. And I don't think that's what Paul's talking about at all. The word literally means um, unapproved. And Paul uses the word here salvifically. It's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And in the end of the verse, unless indeed you fail the test. And that phrase, unless indeed you fail the test, unless indeed you are unapproved, our same word. And so it's very clear that Paul is not talking about saved people and their rewards. He's talking about lost people on their way to judgment. And so it's the same thing in in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27. Paul's not talking about saved people who risk losing heavenly rewards. He's talking about lost people on the way to damnation. He's saying that it would be a shame after completing his gospel ministry for him to be revealed as a lost person himself. Paul actually holds out the possibility that after preaching the gospel to others and after being numbered among God's people, that he himself might be shown to be an imposter by turning away from Jesus. If it surprises you that Paul talks this way, then then good. I think Paul anticipates that in objection because in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 10, Paul is going to draw examples from the Old Testament to prove his point. He points to the people who were numbered among the people of God during the time of the Exodus and who were apparently redeemed by God but who nevertheless ended under God's judgment. Do you see where Paul's going with this? We have more in common with that Exodus generation than we think. Verses 1 through 5, Paul says that they had two of the same privileges that we have. And yet they nevertheless fell and became unapproved. Fell under judgment. Look at these two privileges that Paul mentions in verses uh, 1 through 4. The first one is in verses 1 to 2. Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so you see in verse one, Paul makes this reference to the children of Israel being under the cloud, which is that obvious reference to Exodus chapter 13, where we know that God led the children of Israel through the wilderness by a a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And that cloud and that fire represented God's presence and leadership among his people. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, look, they had God's presence and leadership through the pillar, cloud, and fire. Of course, we have God's presence and leadership in our lives through the presence of the indwelling spirit. They had that privilege. We have that privilege. They passed through the sea. 
he says, which is an obvious reference to God's miraculous work of dividing the sea so that people could walk through on dry ground. And they were, as it were, redeemed by God from slavery in Egypt. And by following that cloud and by going through that sea with walls of water on either side of them, Paul's saying they were baptized, as it were, into their leader, Moses. They experienced God's leadership. They experienced being numbered among the people of God. They experienced a baptism. We've experienced a baptism. They had that privilege. We have that privilege. Paul also says in verses 3 through 4, they ate spiritual food. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Now, eating spiritual food and drinking spiritual drink obviously is a reference to the manna and the water that God provided for the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. The Bible says God caused bread to come down out of heaven for his people to eat. And God caused water to come out of a rock for them to drink. And so Paul says in verse 4 that this spiritual rock was following them in the wilderness. And I know there's a lot of discussion about this, and I'm not going to have time to unpack the whole thing. I'll just cut to the chase and tell you what I think he's talking about. I think for Paul, he's giving us a riff on an old rabbinic tradition that says that the Israelites carried with them the well of water that was mentioned in Numbers chapter 21. And this well of water was following them around, as it were, through the wilderness because they were taking it with them. And this well became, uh, according to Paul's thinking, a sort of type of Christ. A foreshadowing of Christ. And so it's a reference to Christ's spiritual presence among his people, even there in the Old Covenant, providing water for them so they had spiritual food and spiritual drink. So they had Christ, as it were, with them. They had spiritual food, spiritual drink. We have spiritual food, spiritual drink. Jesus is the bread out of heaven, the Bible says. We have spiritual drink. We have the Lord's Supper which signifies the realities of the gospel that we hold to. But look what Paul says. Even though we have all these privileges, they had all those privileges. Look what Paul says in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now think of this. Here's this group of people that God had redeemed from slavery in Egypt. They had walked through the sea with walls of water on each side and they went into the wilderness and God led an entire generation to die in that wilderness because they would not trust him to take care of them, to take the land. Think of all those examples in the book of Numbers where the people turn to idolatry and what does God do to them? He destroys them, he judges them. These redeemed people, numbered among the peoples of God, becoming judged. I don't think Paul is trying to say here that Christians can lose their salvation. That's not what Paul is saying at all. But what he is saying is that God's judgment showed that those people enjoyed the external privileges of running with God's people, but they had never experienced God. External spiritual privileges do not deliver us from judgment if we choose to follow sin rather than follow Christ. There's a warning here for us. And we see it in that old covenant story. External privileges do not deliver us from judgment if we choose to follow sin rather than Christ. The night before the incident with my wife, 
uh, Susan left the girls with me to, to watch after them as she went out to run some errands. And I let them do what they always like to do, which is to sit in mommy and daddy's room, sit on their bed and watch a video. So I put the girls, set them up on the bed, let them watch their little educational video. And then I went downstairs and I had some things that I had to attend to. And after a while, I heard this crying coming from upstairs and little feet coming down the stairs to where I was. And it was my three-year-old, Emily. And she comes to me and she's holding her head saying she's hurt her head and she's crying hysterically. And I think, okay, I'm just going to kiss her head and she'll be all right. And she comes over to me and I put my hand on her head and I've got blood on my hands. And I look at the back of her head and she's got this gash in the back of her head and her hair is becoming matted with blood. Now, I'm not sure exactly how she did this, but somehow she fell off of my bed, it turns out, and she gashed her head on my nightstand. And so by the time my wife came home, I was holding my hysterical daughter over the sink with water running over her head while she is crying and trying to get the blood out of her hair and Susan walks in and she just looks at me like you're here five minutes and head wounds okay (laughs) so not long after that I end up at the urgent care center with Emily and she ends up with three staples in her head which you can come see for yourself after the service if you'd like to see them but the point is is that Emily for Emily there's probably no more safe or secure place than being in mommy and daddy's room. There probably isn't any more familiar place to her. There's no tricks in mommy and daddy's room. Nevertheless, it was her security and familiarity on that bed that probably made her most vulnerable as she drifted toward the edge and fell over. She wasn't taking heed. It's really easy for us to be lulled into a false sense of security. There may be some area in your life in which you have experienced a great deal of progress over sin. You've had so much progress that you're no longer vigilant against maybe a besetting sin that used to be a regular part of your life. And it is your comfort and your secure position that are opening you up for a fall. You may be a member of a great church. You may be rubbing shoulders with some of the brightest theological minds in the world here at the seminary. You may be going through a Copernican revolution in your theological outlook. You may have all the right associations in your life and great spiritual privileges, but none of them exempt you from judgment if you choose to walk away from Christ to walk in your sin. And you can get there really quick just by not taking heed, by being unaware of the great spiritual risk and by not being aware of your privileges. There was a Boyce College student that I knew when I was a student here who I found out uh, not long ago has completely walked away from the faith. When I look at, you, when I look at this room, I don't look at this room as a group of people who are impenetrable to falling. When I look at myself, I don't look at a man who is unsusceptible to falling. I think the Lord is calling us to beware and not to be so arrogant about our privileges and to know that our only hope is King Jesus to save us and to sustain us. And if God's people who walk through the sea with walls of water on each side were not immune from falling in judgment, then neither are we. So beware of your privileges. Also this, 
Paul says in verses 6 through 11, beware of your desires. Beware of your desires. Verses 6 through 11 have bookends. Paul uh, tells us why God's judgment came, judgments came down on his people in the Old Testament in verses 6 and in verse 11. And then in verses 7 through 10 in the middle, he gives four examples of God's judgment coming down on his people for their sin. I want to take a look first, though, at those bookends in verses 6 and 11. Look at verse 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Look at verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul says that God's judgment on his people's disobedience happened as an example for us. Give you a little parentheses here for a second. Anybody that treats the Old Testament as if it's some other book that doesn't relate to Christians doesn't understand what Christianity is. The Old Testament is ours. It teaches us about Jesus and it gives us warnings of how to be faithful to Jesus. Okay? This is how the apostles read the Old Testament. This is how you and I read the Old Testament. Okay? Close parentheses. Paul says that these things happened and they were written down as an example for us, written for our instruction. What was the instruction? In this case, it's a negative example, isn't it? That we should not crave evil things. So Paul's exhortation, therefore, is not aimed, first of all, at their deeds, but at their heart. The reason for this is really simple. If you crave evil, you will do evil. If you crave righteousness, you will do righteousness. If God has your heart, then God has you. If God doesn't have your heart, God does not have you. And it doesn't matter how many of his rules that you follow. If he doesn't have your heart, he does not have you. This is the way that Jesus himself taught, isn't it? When he said in Matthew 15, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, and they're the things that come out of our heart. So the exhortation is really clear here. Beware of your heart. Beware of your desires. The Bible says that the wise man knows himself well enough to know that he is a sinner in his heart. And you need to beware. There are four temptations Paul mentions in these verses of which we need to beware. The first one is in verse 7. Look at it. It's idolatry. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now, don't miss this. This is obviously a reference to that story in the Old Testament where the people got impatient waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. And so they had Aaron make for them an idol, a golden calf. And we know that God's judgment fell on them. About 3,000 people fell to the sword because they went into this idol worship. But notice the connection that Paul makes. He says, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. It's interesting that Paul pulled that verse out. The children of Israel were having problems with eating and drinking and idolatry. And here we are with the Corinthians having problems with eating and drinking and idolatry. And Paul is saying, don't be idolaters. Paul warns them in verse 8 against immorality. 
nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. And this is that story in Numbers 25 where the people of Israel committed immorality with the Moabite women. They got mixed up with idolatry in the process, and God sent a plague that killed 23,000 Israelites in one day. And the plague didn't end until Phinehas came and found one Israelite man and caught him in the act with a Moabite woman, and he ran a spear through both of them and killed them. And, And the Bible says that the plague stopped. So he says, don't be idolaters, don't be immoral. Look at verse 9, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. He's saying, don't test the Lord. This, of course, is a reference to the story of the bronze serpent where the people complained against the Lord that they didn't have food, and so the Lord sent a judgment of serpents to kill them. Poisonous snakes, and then God told Moses to put a snake on a standard, a bronze serpent on a standard, and people could look to that and be saved. But nevertheless, many of them fell and died in the wilderness under God's judgment. Paul says in verse 10, Look out for grumbling, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer, which I think is a reference probably generically to the fact that when the spies came back to report on the promised land, the people of Israel didn't believe God, and they didn't go into the land, and so God destroyed a whole generation in the wilderness. But the point is this, in every one of these instances, it was the people's hearts that were drawn away from God first, and then it was their disobedience that followed. Paul is saying is that if you are going to survive, you've got to beware of your desires. Paul is saying that these things were written as a warning because when people are drawn away into judgment, their heart is always the first thing to go. When I was in college, I had a really good friend that had a shaping influence on me as I was growing in the gospel. As a matter of fact, he led me to become a member of the church that he was a member of. It was his home church. And this church of this friend of mine ended up having a huge influence on me in college. I became an intern at that church and learned about the ministry at that church. And I lived with this friend and his family while I was working at that church. And we had the best fellowship that summer that I lived with him. And we had the best time together. So I thought. Because beginning in the fall semester of that next year in college my friend began to have some some problems. He had a really tough breakup with this girl and he got really disillusioned with his own church and with the evangelical church in America in general. He began to entertain some real skepticism about the Bible and about the truthfulness of Christianity. And at the time he was going through this, I just thought he was going through some of the normal wrestlings that college students go through and actually some wrestlings that I had been through and had come out of, except that he wasn't coming out of it. And the following summer, I went back and I lived with his family and I worked at that that church again. And he didn't come to live with his family that summer. Instead, he went to study abroad overseas in Europe. And at the end of the summer, I was still at his house. He came home from, from Europe and he was a different man. He wasn't even the same guy that I knew even a year before that. And he explained to me when he got back that he had gone ahead and given himself over to an immoral and dissolute pattern of life while he was in Europe. And that in fact he had decided to leave Christianity altogether. And none of my confrontations with him and exhortations to him to come back did anything. And it's been about 15 years now since this guy, since my friend turned away from Christ. And the first time that I saw him in many years was in late 2008 and he was still unrepentant. And I still pray for him. 
But in retrospect, what pushed my friend over the edge wasn't merely a corruption of his intellect. It was a corruption of his desires. In Europe, it was not a syllogism that pushed him over the edge. It was his sinful desires that pushed him over the edge. And there's no arguing with a person who desires to follow their sin rather than to follow Christ. And so Paul is saying to us, you have to beware of your desires. It's your desires that are going to take you over the edge first. You have to turn your heart away from evil and set your affections on Jesus. So Paul says, beware of your privileges, beware of your desires. And look finally at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, beware of your strength. Beware of your strength because you are not as strong as you think you are. In verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul says, therefore... Because you know from the Old Testament there were generations of people who were numbered among the people of God and yet nevertheless fell in the wilderness. Because you know that, you have to take heed or you will fall as well. If they did what they did, seeing what they had seen and still sinned, then you can do the same. Paul's saying you have to be vigilant over your own soul or you might lose it. The moment that you begin to coast is the moment that you become the most vulnerable. You may feel that you're standing firm. You may feel self-reliant, but you're really not. You are not as strong as you think you are. But verse 13, God is. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Meaning that there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing that you're going to face that human beings through the ages have not faced before. No temptation is, is, is new. He says, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted by, beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. What he means by this is, is there's nothing that's common to man, there's nothing new under the sun, and there's nothing that's going to surprise God. And there is no temptation that God cannot and is not able to get you out of. Paul's basically saying is that the same God who provided you with salvation through the gospel of Jesus, the same God who provided you for forgiveness through Christ, that same God provides you the way of escape every single time if you will take it. Last Thursday night, I was about to go down the very same steps that my wife had gone down. And it was late at night, all the lights were off, so I flipped on the light at the top of the steps. And as I turned it on, it flashed and it went out. And so I'm looking down these steps into the darkness. And I thought, well, I'm not pregnant. <laughs> I'm not carrying cushions. And you know what happened next. God decided to answer my prayer for a sermon illustration. <laughs> my feet slipped out from under me. I went airborne and I hit so hard. It's painful to think about it. I landed with the stairs right in the middle of my back. And I slid down. And when my back hit, my head snapped back and banged really hard on the steps. I, 
I, look, I got up and I looked around. I thought, am I awake? Am I, am I knocked out? I couldn't believe how hard I had fallen. It was so hard that the, my wife heard the commotion from two floors up. And she comes down late at night to see if, if I'm okay. But there's my illustration, right? I mean, it was just when I became the most confident that I became the most vulnerable. And that's just it. Self-confidence and self-reliance are deadly for us as Christians. And they're deadly for you. I think God is saying to us, don't be arrogant people. We don't stand on our spiritual laurels. We stand on Jesus. We stand as a humble, empty-handed people before God. And if God isn't daily sustaining us in salvation, we would fall away to our desires. And we need to be humble about that. And we need to take heed lest we fall. You know, the scripture says that God is always going to provide a way of escape when these temptations come. But if you're not taking heed, you won't see it. You won't see the off-ramp. And you'll go right on towards destruction. You have to take heed to see the way of escape. So let me finish with just a, a couple of thoughts here. I want you to think about what's at stake in the pursuit of your own holiness. You have so much to gain and you have everything to lose. If you walk away from Christ, Paul is saying you have judgments to fear. Do not walk away from Jesus. And let me say one other thing. In your pursuit of holiness, don't just say no. Just say no may be a good slogan for an anti-drug campaign. It's a horrific strategy for holiness. Our strategy to beware of our privileges and to beware of our desires and our strengths any strategy that we come up with will not work if it's merely an ethic of deprivation, a just say no kind of an ethic. If you want to cut the root of cravings for evil, then you have to learn what Thomas Cranmer called the expulsive power of a new affection. You not only have to take your heart off your idols, but you have to set your heart on something that will keep the demons away. Meaning that the we could say it like Chalmers said it. He said it this way. The best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one and by the love of what is good to expel the love of what is evil. Which means if you're going to turn away from your idols, you've got to set your heart on Jesus. You have to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, as he said in Philippians 3, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to knowing him. I consider those things rubbish. I would rather have Jesus than anything in this world. And your heart won't come away from idols and from craving evil until you learn how to crave Jesus. You won't crave Jesus until you learn how to fix your eyes on him in his word and in the gospel. And to delight yourselves in him in that way. Take heed in that way, lest you fall. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that you would use this word to sanctify your people and to conform them into the image of Jesus. Protect us from our idols. Protect us from our evil cravings. And keep us faithful, following hard after Christ. Help us to look away from ourselves and to look to him who was crucified and raised for us. And Lord, we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.